Those were the keywords from the so-called smoking gun tape, the conversation between Richard Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, about how to get the FBI to back off its investigation into the Watergate break-in that occurred 50 years ago this week, June 17, 1972. The plan they came up with in the days after the burglary was to get the CIA and its powerful director, Richard Helms, to tell the then head of the FBI, L. Patrick Gray, to back off to stay the hell out of it, to drop its probe into the financing of the break-in, lest dark agency secrets would be revealed. It was a lie, of course. The Watergate break-in had been bankrolled by Nixon campaign donors, not the agency spooks at Langley. But as Jefferson Morley writes in his new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, Helms was prepared to do what Nixon wanted at least at first, drafting a memo instructing two deputies that the agency needed to instruct the Bureau to, quote, confine themselves to the personalities already arrested, end quote, and, quote, desist from expanding this investigation into other areas. Helms may have later gotten cold feet, but as Morley reminds us, it was just one of many examples of the exceedingly strange and still mysterious relationship between Nixon and the spymaster a dynamic in which each man seemed to have abundant blackmail material against each other. As the country prepares to commemorate the half-century anniversary of Watergate, we'll look back at the events of that era and get a fascinating new take on why they matter more than ever right now on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So no small irony that we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of Watergate, which is, you know, widely viewed as the political scandal that represented the greatest threat to American democracy, the same week that the uh, January 6 hearings are revealing what was um, arguably uh, an even greater threat 
to American democracy with uh, Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, culminating in the attack on the Capitol. But, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, when you look at the read the takeaways uh, this week about the anniversary of Watergate, the significance that people are seizing on is it was an inflection point, a breaking point in which people lost their trust in government. I think there were uh, there was a recent uh, poll of, uh, citing from the Pew Center back in 1964, 77% of the American public said they trusted government to do the right thing at least most of the time. Today we are we're in the 30s on that in in some by some measurements in the 20s on trust in government and it was Watergate that shattered that trust and not just from the break in it was also what we learned in the aftermath of Watergate particularly about all the dirty dealings of the CIA, its attempts to assassinate foreign leaders, particularly Fidel Castro, its spying on Americans. And what's so fascinating in the Morley book is Richard Helms was at the center of all of that. And, you know, in that smoking gun tape, which references, you know, the prospect of blackmail, Nixon had awareness of what the CIA was covering up. It had nothing to do with the Watergate break-in per se, but he knew the CIA had lots that it wanted to conceal. And of course, Helms knew that Nixon's White House had lots to conceal. So it was a really interesting, fascinating dynamic. Just a couple of, uh, I agree with all that, but just a couple of quick contrasts between Watergate, that trauma for the country, and and January 6th. Uh, One is that while it didn't start this way, by the time the hearings were over, there was largely a consensus in this country that these were horrible crimes that President Nixon committed and that he had to go. And that was reflected in Republican support for his resigning. Today, there is no consensus. You know, we have a a hopelessly uh, polarized country, a fragmented media. There isn't a single set of facts for people to agree on. Well, there is, but people have their own facts these days. So that's one important contrast. Um, The other, which goes to Morley's book, is the difference between the role of the kind of national security apparatus and the intelligence agencies back then and today. And this is a I think, more positive, optimistic story about uh, January 6th and what Donald Trump perpetrated on on this country. Clearly, from Morley's account and from a lot of other things that we know, there was CIA involvement in the Watergate conspiracy. This time around, January 6th, while Trump put enormous pressure to get the military in particular, but national security figures in general, to bend to his will, for the most part, they did not. There was the debate over invoking the Insurrection Act. There was that horrible march across Lafayette Square to St. John's Episcopal Church, the Church of the President, that uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, and the Secretary of Defense, Esper, and the Attorney General participated in. But that was uh, largely symbolic. And in the end, they stood up to Trump. The, The national security establishment did not do his bidding. And that, I think, is something 
to be uh, thankful for. Who knows what will happen if uh, Donald Trump is reelected, but at least this time around, they held the line. But there's a flip side, because even as the kind of establishment bureaucracy in Watergate was hardened against presidential abuses, it's important to note that despite what Mike referred to as the consensus that Nixon had to go, that there was a substantial minority of people who were angry about what happened at Nixon and who in the days that followed Watergate essentially believed that what they had a project in front of them to re-strengthen the presidency and to make sure that Watergate never happened again. And much of that was led by a man named Roger Ailes, who went on to form Fox <laughs> News and who essentially over the course of the last 50 years has created a small complex within Washington, D.C. that's dedicated to strong presidential power and to decreasing the accountability. So many of the seeds of our inability or our difficulty to hold Trump to account were also planted during Watergate. True. But at the same time, there were enormous reforms, post-Watergate reforms, including getting money out of politics. That didn't work all that well. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and it didn't work all that well because many of the people who were who were angry about Watergate pushed back. True. And yeah. and, and, and others as well. And, and the question will be, um, and we'll see this in these hearings as they unfold, how much of a focus is this committee going to put on passing the kind of legislation and pushing for the kinds of initiatives that could prevent uh, what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election from happening again. And because of that consensus that doesn't seem to exist anymore, I'm not terribly hopeful that we'll see the kinds of reforms that will, will make a difference. You know, in a sense, and just getting back to the theme of Morley's book, there were two scandals that were a threat to American democracy, both, you know, shrouded in secrecy. One was, you know, the machinations of the Nixon White House and obviously its obsession with its enemies and protecting secrets and going after the people who were revealing them, journalists, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, all of which led, of course, to Watergate. And then the second scandal was the larger one of the CIA and all it had been concealing about its dirty business around the world. World. And in a sense, they kind of merged with Watergate and the Watergate reforms. Obviously, campaign finance was one of them, the creation of FOIA, all these other actions, but also, you know, the church committee and the establishment of intelligence committees to, uh, on the Hill to do oversight of the CIA, which was not anything that was done before. How well they've all worked is another question, but it is striking and good to be remembered that there was a lot of our government was covering up back in the day. So we've got a great guest to talk about it, Jefferson Morley. So let's get to it. All right, we've now got with us veteran Washington journalist Jefferson Morley, an author of the new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Jeff, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, Mike. So lots to talk about here as we uh, celebrate, if that's the word, the 50th <laughs> anniversary of the mother of all political scandals, Watergate. You've got a uh, interesting, provocative, fresh take here about the very important 
but often forgotten role of the CIA and in particular its director, Richard Helms. So Steiner, let's start out by talking about who Richard Helms was and why he's in a significant part of the Watergate story. Richard Helms was the eighth director of the CIA, um, a long-serving director, served from June 1966 to January 1973, um, uh, more than six years, considered by people in the CIA one of the best directors that the agency ever had, navigated the agency through the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal. So a very significant figure. And what I try to do in the book is Watergate is typically conceived of as a chapter in the history of the Nixon presidency, which is a very legitimate way to frame the issue, or as a chapter in the history of the crusading free press, the narrative that we see in all the president's men. And I try to frame the issue a little bit differently and try to understand the Watergate affair as a chapter in the history of the Central Intelligence Agency, which is very important because five of the seven burglars were associated with the agency. Four of them had worked for the agency and worked on operations in Cuba. So that side of the story did not really come out in 1972 75, you know, when the when the scandal was in full bloom, the role of the CIA, thanks to Helms's very clever testimony and presentation, was really submerged and not known. Much more has emerged over the recent years, which enabled me to write this book. Although I should say, Jeff, just just one quick sure. follow up on that it wasn't. I mean, during the Senate Watergate investigation, yes. the Republicans, Howard Baker and his chief counsel, Fred Thompson, were very aggressively pursuing the CIA connection. Yes. And, and, and I should say that in, in some ways, this book follows on what Baker and Thompson tried to do at the time in the in the conventional narrative. You know, people thought Baker and Thompson were just carrying water for Nixon which to be sure they were doing, but they had these real questions about what the CIA did. And they uncovered some, a lot of information, which I have kind of developed in detail in the story. So the seeds were there. People had the suspicion, even in Woodward and Bernstein had the suspicion, but nobody really had the story. It didn't come out until much later. And now we can see it more clearly. What was the hidden hand of the CIA? So I was going to say that I am interested in how Helms was able to insulate the CIA from all that scrutiny. But before that, the book is called Scorpion's Dance, and the scorpions who are dancing around each other are Helms and Nixon. So yes. let's talk a little bit about, the, and I didn't realize that their relationship went way back. So talk a little bit about how they got to know each other, what the relationship was like, and then you can take us forward yeah. in the story. Yeah. So I, I had become interested in when, the story of, of when they first met, and which was in 1956, when Nixon is going to Hungary um, in a kind of a goodwill visit after the Soviets have crushed the Hungarian rebellion. And he has a briefing from the CIA about what's the situation with Hungarian refugees, what's the situation in Hungary, and the agency sends over Helms to have this talk. Two very, very different men. Nixon, this kind of anxious striver, grew up poor on the West Coast, insecure, hostile to the Eastern elites. And Helms, the very epitome of that Eastern elite, grows up on Philadelphia's main line, goes to boarding school in Switzerland. His father's an executive for the Aluminum Company of America, the very embodiment of, of what Nixon doesn't like. But they do come together. They are rising in the ranks of the U.S. government in the late 1950s. 
Nixon as vice president and Helms as assistant deputy director of plans, a key position in the CIA. And then where they really come together, although not like face-to-face friends, but they're definitely in meetings together is when Fidel Castro takes power in Cuba in 1959. And Nixon kind of appoints himself as the Eisenhower administration's point man on Cuba. Eisenhower didn't really care about Cuba, but Nixon, the the red baiter, the anti-communist really did. And so he tries to forge a much more aggressive policy towards Castro, including assassinating him. And Helms is is coming to the the top of the CIA at the same time. So they have this meeting and this, this is key to understanding their relationship later. They are both knowledgeable about the CIA operations to assassinate Castro that start to develop in 1960 when Nixon is still vice president and continue through 1963 when Helms is deputy director. So that common bond of they had participated in highly sensitive stuff around Cuba that they could never afford to be made public or else it was going to be very damaging to both of them. That's in the background as Nixon comes to power in 68, keeps Helms on as his CIA director. That shared secret past was something that they had to manage you know, very careful. They had dirt yeah. on each other. Exactly. Well, as Howard Baker said, Helms and Nixon had so much on each other that neither of them could even breathe. You know, they really knew. And these guys were tough infighters. Helms was the consummate bureaucrat, you know. And so they knew how to wield power and you use the advantage of secrets in their negotiations with each other. Just to uh, pick up on something you said, I mean, it's clear uh, that Helms was deeply knowledgeable and aware of the agency's repeated efforts to assassinate Castro. Um, he was in charge <laughs> He was uh, of plans. He was in the loop at every step. I don't think we know that Nixon was aware of the assassination attempts, do we? There's nothing in the public record that shows that. No, here's what I infer from that, which was Helms's buddy, Howard Hunt, is sent to Havana in March 1960 to scope out the situation. Castro's been in power for a year. The revolution has not really taken the hard left turn that it will take. Fidel and, and Che Guevara are preparing for that, but they haven't done it yet. So Hunt is still free to travel. He goes there and he does this, an assessment. He comes back and he presents the National Security Council in March 1960. And he has four points about Castro. And the first point is we need to assassinate him. The number one recommendation of Howard Hunt coming back from Havana was we need to assassinate Castro. And he brings that message to Nixon's military aide, Bob Cushman. Okay, and he he briefs Cushman on his trip. Cushman says that he gave Hunt his personal phone number. So I do not believe that Howard Hunt had that recommendation, had a chance to pass it to Nixon and Nixon did not know about it. That's why I conclude that Nixon did know about the plots to kill Castro, because Hunt, kind of their chief guy on the ground in Cuba, had recommended it. Let's fast forward really quickly to to Watergate, um, which is at the heart of your book. It seems to me that the CIA's involvement in Watergate falls into two major buckets. The first is, did it employ, give material support, know of, help plan the Watergate break-in? There certainly were a lot of connections between the two. And then the second element, of course, is did the CIA and Helms more particularly assist in the cover-up? So let's take the first one. Right. Did Helms know? about the Watergate break-in beforehand? Was he aware that there were plans going on that Nixon had his own kind of dirty tricks banned? 
Did he know about the Watergate break-in in particular? I found no evidence of that. It's hard not to believe that Helms didn't know that Hunt was doing burglaries for the White House. There's a White House tape in which Haldeman says to Nixon, Nixon's in a rage about Daniel Ellsberg and the leaking of the Pentagon Papers in June 1971. And he wants somebody to go on the offensive and smear Ellsberg and do all kinds of things. And Haldeman says, well, there's this guy Hunt, and Helms says he's quiet, ruthless, and careful. He's on our side. So Helms had recommended Hunt to the White House as a guy who they could use for this type of thing. The burglars also, I think it's, it's pretty clear that the burglars engaged in more break-ins than just Watergate. Frank Sturgis told the FBI about seven break-ins at offices of the Chilean government, which had a very left-wing government at the time, was an enemy of the Nixon administration. So you had these national security operations going on. I don't think that Helms knew about it. I think he had kind of contracted out, and I think he got the intelligence take back. Whatever the burglars got, the CIA wound up with. Now, the White House was the primary customer, so to speak, but the CIA also got the take. So I think that was kind of the passive role of the CIA with this burglary squad that had been organized by Hunt. They get the take, but they're not in control of it. Although I got to say, Jeff, I was struck being reminded and learning new details about just how close the connections were between Helms and the CIA and the Watergate burglars. It's not just that Howard Hunt and Helms had a very close relationship uh, and had worked together for years that Hunt requested assistance from the CIA, equipment and other things McCord did. Yeah, no, the the actual equipment that McCord got, the, 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 the eavesdropping equipment, when he went to Chicago to buy it from this guy, this guy was used to selling to the CIA and he said, I, I need, I, need, I need the CIA to vouch for you. McCord went back to the CIA and they vouched for him. So the CIA had approved the equipment. That wasn't Helms personally, but clearly Hunt and McCord enjoyed institutional support from the CIA. And talk about after the break-in when McCord has a fire <laughs> at his house that burns records <laughs> with the assistance of somebody from the CIA, this guy Pemmington. I, that was a new detail for me. Yeah. So when, when McCord is arrested, he calls his wife and he tells her to do two things. He says, one, go to my office. And in, in McCord's office, there's a picture, an autographed picture of Dick Helms, which says, with deep appreciation, Dick Helms. He tells his wife, take that picture down. And he, the other thing that he tells his wife is, burn all papers that connect me with the CIA. So she has this party with this man named Pennington. Pennington was a longtime CIA informant. And what, what Pennington did was he compiled archives of records on subversives. So when the burglars are breaking in you know, to eavesdrop on the liberal Democrats at the DNC, McCord is naturally interested in that stuff. He has a, a, a longtime relationship with Pennington. So when Pennington goes to his house to burn McCord's stuff, they're trying to cut off this connection, any connection between McCord and the CIA, because they know how sensitive it is. The funny part of the story is they forget to open the flue on the fireplace. The whole house fills up with smoke and they run out into the neighborhood gagging and coughing. And the police department is called and they have to explain this thing. Master spies. <laughs> so, Jeff, there's the then there's the second example of the CIA's connection to Watergate that Victoria alluded to, which is 
which is the effort to obstruct or to cover it up. Talk about that, but you know Nixon clearly had le- leverage or believed he had leverage over Helms. And one thing that kept coming up was Nixon referring to the whole Bay of Pigs thing. So talk about that effort on Nixon's part. Yeah, so the, the whole Bay of Pigs thing, where that comes from is, is a famous tape of the conversation on June 23rd, six days after the break-in. When it's the smoking gun get, tape. It's the smoking gun tape. And when this tape was released in 1974, this was the first indication that, or first proof that Nixon had tried to suborn the CIA, tried to enlist the CIA and cover up. So it proved beyond all doubt that he had obstructed justice. But in that tape, Nixon takes Haldeman inside and, and tell Helms that if he doesn't cooperate, if he doesn't crush the FBI investigation, this is going to open up the whole Bay of Pigs thing again whole Bay of Pigs thing. Like, what was that about? Everybody wondered about that. And so, you know, what was he referring to? So in 1978, when Haldeman wrote his memoir, he wrote in there, he said, I think that that was Nixon's coded way of referring to JFK's assassination, that that was, it was, it was a sensitive topic that he couldn't, that that's the way, the only way he could talk about it, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And I think that that's right. I think Haldeman was right. And I talk about a, a White House tape from eight months earlier where Nixon calls Helms on the carpet. From the start of his administration, he's been trying to get the story of the Bay of Pigs, the internal story, the CIA's internal story out of Helms, and he can't get it. He's so annoyed that he finally summons Helms to the Oval Office and he says, we gotta talk about this Bay of Pigs thing. And the first thing he says, right to talking to Nixon is the who shot John Angle. You can hear it on the tape. Nixon says very clearly, the who shot John Angle. That's proof pot. That can only be a reference to Kennedy's assassination. So when he's got Helms there, he's making very clear his interest in the Bay of Pig story relates to Kennedy's assassination. This goes back to the Castro assassination plots. What they were worried about was that the Castro assassination plots would come out and people would think that Kennedy's assassination was somehow related to the CIA's plans to kill Castro. That was the story they both had to suppress. And that was Nixon's leverage over Helms, especially once the burglars had been arrested. I mean, the primary thing they were worried about, Jeff, it is important to realize that when this conversation takes place in 1972, the knowledge of the CIA's attempts to assassinate Castro had not been publicly confirmed. There had been a couple of press, uh, Drew Pearson, the columnist, had written about it, but it never got traction and there was never any sort of official Confirmation. uh, confirmation that this was real. So it's entirely plausible that Nixon is talking about the assassination attempts by the CIA against Castro and the concern that that might have motivated Castro to retaliate by assassinating Kennedy, not that the CIA was in any way involved in the assassination of Kennedy. It's an important distinction. Yes, but there were people at the top of the U.S. government, Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy, to name two, who did think that the CIA was involved in Kennedy's assassination. And that was a live issue, too. So in any case, whatever the truth was, Helms and Nixon could not afford to have this story come out. The story that Castro had retaliated, that had gotten wind of the CIA plots and had retaliated, That story was floated by Johnny Rosselli, 
the mobster who the CIA had enlisted to kill Castro back in 1960. Roselli was being called before a grand jury in in Los Angeles for some unrelated crimes. He sent his messenger to Washington and said, if I get called before that grand jury, I'm going to talk about the Castro assassination plot. That threat goes to the Nixon White House in 1971. John Mitchell meets with Robert Mayhew, Rosselli's associate, who was involved in all of this business, and they agree. They cave to the blackmail and they protect Rosselli and Mayhew from prosecution on this point in return for the favor that these guys not talk about the Castro assassination plots. The point was Kennedy's assassination was a live issue between Helms and Nixon, and they both knew it. Yeah. Yeah. What I love is, by the way, just the blackmail (laughs) on top of blackmail. Mayhew and Rosselli are blackmailing the Justice Department. Helms, Nixon is blackmailing Helms. No, no. And and part of the story here is, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Watergate was a nastier piece of business than we really understood at the time. These guys, they were killers and blackmailers, you know. Hunt was involved in the assassination attempts. Bernard Barker, one of the other burglars, was involved in assassination. Frank Sturgis was involved in a Castro assassination attempt. These guys were really, really tough, bad guys to an extent that maybe we sensed at the time, but it's much clearer now. It's almost like The Sopranos, you know, it's bad. But when push came to shove in the early summer of 1972, when Nixon had his, you know, Halderman, it was it Halderman or was it Ehrlichman? I can't remember. Uh, you, Haldeman. Uh, Haldeman. Had Haldeman, Haldeman you know, kind of make the, yeah. the implied threat to Helms. Right. Helms maybe kind of sort of caved initially, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. He, he tried to fudge this in, in his book and in his testimony. He said, you know, he stood up to Nixon from the start. He didn't. He went to Pat Gray or he sent his deputy, Dick Walters, to Pat Gray, the acting director of the FBI, and said, taper off the investigation. That was a very Helmsian phrase. Taper off the investigation. They didn't want it to go anywhere. Pat Gray, you know, agrees and goes along. And then a couple of weeks later, he comes back to the CIA and says, look, I'm really going to pursue this. And the CIA guys won't put anything in writing. They'll say it to his face. But when it comes to putting in writing, forget it. And it's at that point. I thought Helms wrote a memo to Shackley and Sternfeld about in which he memorialized, you know, the distance itself. Yes, from he the did. Investigation. Yes, he, yeah. In an internal memo, he would he wouldn't give a memo to the FBI. But yes, internally, he was like, we're going to tamp this thing down. We're going to taper it off. So he tries to cooperate. But then after a while, he realizes he can't sustain it. And that's when their Nixon and Helms's interests begin to diverge in the summer of 1972. So, Jeff, let's go back to where you started when you mentioned that you know the CIA had this all this involvement, but that never really got explored. And it made as soon as you said that, I thought to that scene near the beginning of All the President's Men when Bob Woodward is in arraignment court at D.C. Superior Court, and the Watergate burglars are are there and and they're pleading, and um, I guess the judge asks them, you know, where they worked, and and one of them very quietly says CIA, and Woodward's ears perk up, he writes it down. That was a big revelation. That was a huge deal. But so then, why didn't this aspect of the story get explored until much more recently, and and now again with your reporting? The big question is just the CIA got it 
got a lot of kind of cultural and deference at the time, more than they would get now. So the CIA issues this, this statement and says, these men are retired and we had nothing to do with them. Completely false, but people tended to believe it. Then the question was, well, Hunt had been working at this place, the Mullen Company, a big public relations firm, which was owned by Robert Bennett, prominent Washington figure, son of a senator from Utah. Future senator himself. And so one question that, that reporters had, Woodward had, and also Sandy Smith, a reporter for Time Magazine, was, was Hunt a, you know, using Mullen Company as a, as a CIA cover? And they went and they told Woodward the story and they said, no, Mullen was not a CIA front. And Woodward went away satisfied. And your reference to the CIA, and it happens at the beginning of all the president's men, that's it as far as the CIA and that story. They never come back to the CIA connections. And they just didn't pursue it, you know, at the time. And I don't really, you know, some people say, oh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, they got suckered. I mean, they went after a good story. The White House was deeply involved. That was a great story. They just did never saw this other side of it. Bernstein certainly had his suspicions, and he wound up writing a lot about the CIA. But in fact, it, what he was found out was so sensitive that he couldn't even get it published in the Washington Post. And of course, Woodward himself went on, you know, to make like a, a huge career out of exposing. <laughs> the CIA, writing about intrigue in the CIA. But I don't know, did he ever come back to this? You know, he, he's very defensive on the question of, you know, why didn't they write about the CIA connection of the Mullen Company, which they no word of that appeared in The Washington Post for the first two years of the scandal. It wasn't until 1974 after the Congress had uncovered that, that the Post began writing about it, and it was never made a significant part of the story. And, you know, so there was that. And then the Watergate, Nixon resigns, the Watergate investigation ends, Nixon gets pardoned, so the impeachment investigation ends, and these loose ends that had been identified by, by Baker and Thompson, what was the CIA really doing? They just never got followed up, and so the story never really came out. Until, until uh, I just want to give a credit here to a book called Secret Agenda by an investigative reporter named Jim Hogan, who pointed out, who just went back and looked at the record and pointed out that the Washington Post narrative of the story had just missed a lot of things that were actually in the record. To this day, though, people who attempt to get Freedom of Information Act requests filed with the CIA to get some of this more than 50-year-old material regarding some of the, the burglars and regarding the CIA's involvement get pretty heavily redacted documents. So what is it that the CIA is even now trying to keep us from learning? Well, if you look at if you look at those redactions in context, and one document is the CIA did a big investigation of Frank Sturgis after during the Watergate scandal. Just who was this guy? He wasn't exactly a CIA asset. He was never a CIA employee or agent or anything like that. He was a soldier of fortune, and he and he traveled in CIA circles, and he had lots of CIA friends. But the CIA was compiled this big file on him to try and figure out what his connections were. That document is riddled with redactions to this day, which are about McCord's business that he set up after his retirement and before the burglary, which a lot of people worked for. I mean, people never really realized that McCord's security service that he opened up in 1970 after he retired, that was like the 
CIA all-star team, uh, you know, of break-in and disguise artists. You know, people would retire, they'd go across the street and work for McCord. That was like the best job in town. So that kind of detail is still, is you know, is still hidden. And so all I can conclude is that Hunt and McCord were handling very sensitive business for the CIA that, that the agency still doesn't want to talk about. And so, you know, draw your own conclusions. But to me, that speaks more to even more to the, the hidden hand of the CIA. Not only was hidden at the time, it's hidden today. <laughs> Let's uh, move the story sure. forward to uh, what happened to uh, Richard Helms, how he was uh, removed as CIA director, offered a plum to be U.S. ambassador to the Shah of Iran, and then faces a uh, somewhat difficult uh, denouement in that job. Yeah. So, you know, this very tense meeting between Helms and Nixon in December 1972, where Nixon fires Helms because he's really been, you know, gone off the reservation, hasn't been helpful on Watergate at all. And Nixon finally wants to get rid of him, so fires him. Helms extracts this face-saving appointment in return. So he's not fired. It's not connected with Watergate. It's all very respectable. Dick Helms is quite skillful at arranging things to look nice. And so off, off Helms goes. But in 1973-74, the Watergate scandal morphs into or evolves into a CIA scandal when it's revealed that Hunt and Gordon Liddy had broken into the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, that when it was revealed that McCord had had back channel communication, and when it was revealed that the White House was taping everything. The scandal really escalates and blows up in 1973, and people start looking hard at the CIA. And Helms and that gets caught up in that investigation with a whole lot of abuses of power that have nothing to do with Watergate, but that are subsequently investigated by the, by the church committee. And the CIA really comes in for its first moment of reckoning in 1975 when the Castro assassination plots are revealed. And it's like people had no idea what the CIA was doing, plotting to kill foreign leaders, spying on Americans, conducting mind control. So it's a terrible time for the CIA and Congress steps in and imposes control for the first time on the CIA, creating the Congressional Oversight Committee. And the Justice Department takes a hard look at Helms's testimony to Congress over this period and finds that he had deceived Congress about a CIA operation and assassination operation in Chile in 1970. And eventually that case comes to court. And despite Dick Helms's many powerful friends in Washington, the Carter administration has been elected on a, in 1976 on a you know, clean government, throw out the Watergate bums message. And so Carter approves of this prosecution or doesn't object to the prosecution of Dick Helms. And, in November 1977, Helms has to plead guilty to a charge of misleading Congress, the only CIA director ever convicted of a crime. What exactly was his false falsehood to Congress about Chile? He was called before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee right after he left the CIA directorship. And he was asked, did you approve author uh, operations to overthrow the government of Chile? And Helms, in public session, under oath, said no. And that was a lie. Helms had authorized an operation to assassinate a top general in Chile as a way of destabilizing a left-wing government that was coming to power. And so that was the story that Helms could, that's why Helms had to plead guilty to the obstruction of Congress charge, because it was a very nasty piece of business. They killed a man for really, you know, it didn't achieve anything. 
And so Helms couldn't afford to have that story come out and he couldn't talk about it in public session. So he lied about it in public and that's what he was prosecuted for. But that was the change in the atmosphere that Watergate brought about. Nobody ever would have asked Dick Helms a tough question like that, you know, before Watergate. But by Watergate, people were losing confidence in the, in the government, the CIA. There'd been so many false statements about progress in Vietnam and Watergate and everything. The government had just lost all credibility. And Helms was really caught in this cultural change where all of a sudden the congressmen who were super nice to him were pretty tough on him just because public opinion had changed very much against the agency. So what is your takeaway from all this? What does this tell us about Watergate and the CIA that should cause us to look in a different way at these events that were so formative? Well, you know, we, we try and extract meaning from the past. And how do we extract meaning from Watergate? I mean, we have the all the president's men narrative, which is, you know, a, a crusading free press takes on a lawless president and holds him accountable. And that's a, you know, kind of ennobling story and a good story and a story that, you know, I believe in that story. I like that story. I, I believe in Woodward and Bernstein and a free press should do that. But, you know, that story omits a lot. And what it omits is just how deeply involved the CIA was in enabling Nixon's agenda. So one is that, you know, the CIA is the, as the president's instrument and what we do and do not know about that in real time. So Watergate tells us there may be a lot more happening with the hidden hand of the CIA in contemporary politics than we know. So that's, I think that's, you know, that's one message. Uh, a second is, you know, the CIA is a very powerful instrument. You know, you have this, basically you have a license to kill and steal overseas, right? It's a very powerful instrument. And in the hands of a corrupt president like Nixon, it's a very dangerous affair or arrangement. And, you know, with, when we look at the very real possibility of Trump coming back into power, you know, if he has the instrument of the CIA under his control, he's a corrupt guy. That's we're going to be in a very dangerous situation. But I, I was going to ask you about that <laughs> because, you know, there are all these uh, comparisons now between Nixon and Trump and Woodward and Bernstein, in fact, right. re- re- wrote a long piece in The Washington Post about that, concluding that Trump is worse. Yeah. <laughs> but and Trump did. And we don't know the all of it, I'm sure, uh, corrupt huge parts of the United States government during his presidency. But what is the evidence that he uh, succeeded in corrupting the CIA? Because it feels like there's not a lot on that. No, 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 no. In fact, I mean, you know, Trump's presidency can be seen as, as uh, his relations with the CIA can be seen as an attempt to, uh, you know, whittle down the power of, of, of the CIA to diminish, impugn, discredit the CIA so that he would be more free to carry out his, you know, his own schemes. And we see that in the Ukraine affair, especially where the whistleblower comes from the CIA and exposes Trump's scheme to, to strong arm Zelensky into saying something bad about, about Biden. So the CIA stands as an independent, more independent institution during, during Trump's first term. No, he did not get control. Yeah. Of it. Well, actually, I, it, I will say that, you know, if he was trying to get control over the CIA, it didn't help probably that like one of his very first acts as president was to completely alienate the workforce by going in front <laughs> of the wall of stars there, the the CIA officers who sacrificed their lives and only talking about his crowd size at the inauguration. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I recently talked to a CIA former and just how galling that was to CIA employees, that first Trump appearance. I mean, I got that very visceral feeling from this person of, of how offensive that was. I mean, I, I bring it up, though, because Trump did install uh, Mike Pompeo as his CIA director. And if he gets back in power, you know, he is going to try and get control of that agency. And so the, the relationship of the presidency to the power that the clandestine service has is, you know, it's going to be a relevant issue and it's going to be a power struggle. We should point out that uh, just the other day, uh, a Spanish court summoned Mike Pompeo to testify <laughs> about CIA efforts to kidnap Julian Assange during his tenure. I know where as, Mike Pompeo uh, is not going for vacation this summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should point out also, Isakoff, that that is based on Yahoo News, a Yahoo News investigation yes. that you were a co-author yeah. of. Right. A great story right. there. Yeah. With Zach Dorfman and Sean Naylor and, um, yeah. uh, you know, evidence that the CIA can still do some pretty rogue things um, when given free reign to do so. Yeah. You know, and I think that's another po actually point that I would like to make about this book is the defense that that Helms offered for the CIA in this period was we are simply the instrument of the president. And if you don't like what we're doing, don't blame us. Presidents want this. So talk to them. And I think what your story shows, like the story of Watergate a long time ago, you know, the CIA has this leeway. They, they have this room to influence things where are they, you know, they're not exactly the president's instrument. They might, they're not exactly rogue, but they are able to influence things independently with, a, with their own interests in mind and not necessarily at the command of the president. Right. Well, information is power, right. and uh, the CIA <laughs> purports to have the information and uh, gives them a great deal of clout inside the government and shaping policy. All right. Well, anyway, it's a uh, fascinating account. The book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate by Jeff Morley. Jeff, thanks again. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh,